0: Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle.
1: I'm Nina and for today we're going to talk about a skill in debate that often gets glossed over but actually plays an important role in leading any discussion in any direction you want, the art of framing.
0: Yeah, so I guess the first thing that we can talk about here is what exactly even is framing because you hear that in a lot of comments from judges, right? But like, What really is framing?
1: I guess technically speaking, a frame can encompass different parts of your speech, like the conclusion of your argument or your first few minutes as a prime minister or as a first speaker, regardless of your side. But really, a frame is your worldview. So you show the nature of things, the behaviors of actors, the different interests of different players. And an effective frame or most frames actually need to paint the world as ways to support your particular arguments. It must be within reasonable bounds of logic still, so it can't be out of this world unless you're debating something philosophical. And a frame provides a sort of metal logic to your arguments, like something your argument to revolve around.
0: Framing is a way for you to strategically set up who the main actor in the debate is. It's also about setting the priorities. So think about how this actor will strategically benefit or would be harmed by a particular side of the debate. So framing basically gives context um, as to their specific interests and arguments. So the importance of framing is sort of weird because a lot of people especially newbies to debating they understand framing as something that isn't really important so what people really find important is arguments right?
1: Yeah so I used to be someone like that like when I was new I used to think that making arguments was enough without realizing that I was putting my arguments in the wrong setting it's like buying yourself a really fancy outfit and then realizing you're not in the proper climate for it that's sort of what I felt with my arguments when I was starting out so I would always argue that it would lead to benefits for feminists, for example. But I didn't give a frame as to what the problem was or what the feminist movement needed. So that's just like a concrete example of what I usually went through as a kid. And there's the reason why um, now I'm very detailed when it comes to framing because I lost like idea light semi-finals or something because I forgot to frame an emotion about feminism. And I felt so bad because like I'm a woman and I failed my own people by not advancing in that round. But anyway, this is why as a newbie debater. I was struggling to win uh, because while I had good arguments, in my opinion, they weren't important enough because I wasn't setting it up in the way that it was supposed to set up. So they were basically playing in their home court and I let them. And I basically fell into the trap like many people do when they start out.
0: Yeah. And you can actually see framing happening in front of you in a lot of cases or in a lot of issues. So we talked about mass shooters in the United States. And the way it's portrayed is if they're white, they're portrayed to be, you know, like lone wolves, mentally ill. But if they're people of color, it's, you know, part of, radical Islam or something like that. Or um, they always bring up like the statistics of black and black crime, some stuff like that. But more recently, I was coaching a newbie institution. And one of the motions that we talked about in preparation for a tournament was about abortion. And they kept going like, but the child, it's about the unborn child. And everyone was using the term child. So I told them that actually using the term child is kind of unstrategic, like even the use of these terms is unstrategic because you're giving off the impression that this person is, I mean, like the the unborn fetus or something like in a test tube would be of the same moral worth as an actual human being that was already born and you consider a child. And if you were on the side of the debate where you want to defend the right to abortion, you want to say that the right of the woman um, is higher than the right of the unborn because the right of the unborn is just a hypothetical or assumed right, it's not really real. It makes more sense to frame the situation as this unborn fetus isn't really a real person yet. They're not even a child because they weren't born yet. So in summary, I guess what you can say is that framing makes a case compelling, not because the arguments become more or less compelling. But because you set the priority, you set the agenda for like how people should think about a certain topic. And uh, recently um, in Visayas InterVarsity, in the semifinals, Ateneo versus UP Diliman, and they were talking about stop and frisk, which was my motion. And I really noticed that the winning team, they had a really big advantage when it came to framing because they were the ones who were saying like, what are the priorities that we have to look at in this debate? We're not really taking a look at, you know, how do we arrest people because there are alternatives for that. They were talking about how the priority in the debate about stop and frisk is how do you best protect people from, you know, undue intrusions into their privacy or into their personal space? How do you prevent people from acting on probably racist thoughts or biases? So sometimes it is very noticeable, or sometimes people don't notice it. Sometimes, whether, you notice it depends on like the person who is listening and it's quite subtle most of the time and that's really the beauty of it.
1: Yeah the mistake here is people think that they're not framing unless they're deliberately doing so but the thing is everything you do comes with a frame right when you for example ask your parents for a higher allowance you usually start it off by talking about what you're spending on and how prices have gone up and how you know the money you have isn't enough anymore you're priming them to think in a particular way before you actually launch the argument as to why you deserve more money or my favorite example is actually in marketing and this was in a lecture when i was very very new to debate i got a lecture about framing and they use the example of steve jobs because steve jobs when they present the new iphone or the new apple product or whatever they don't just immediately zoom in on the merits of the latest phone by talking about all the nitty-gritty updates and stuff but the story usually begins with what the customer needs what the problems they face are and then they narrate a, an effective story where there's an apparent villain and a life-saving hero. And the villain is villain is often an inconvenience like, oh, losing your phone, therefore have these new Apple trackers, right? And then the product is then introduced and the hype suddenly feels justified because all the priming was already done. Even if you don't feel like you needed the phone, suddenly you are presented with so many reasons why that phone might be useful for your life. And that's where framing comes in, right? A lot of your arguments may just exist, but they won't be important to people unless you give them a frame to lean on or a frame to focus on when it comes to talking about these discussions.
0: Yeah, so it's really useful in setting, again, the agenda uh, uh-huh. But like what you said about Steve Jobs, you didn't know you needed this latest Apple product until Steve Jobs told you that this is the problem that you're probably facing. Here's how I can help you with that problem. And that's basically how just like marketing in general works. Like how do people sell cars? You know, like in these car commercials, they don't really sell you the car per se. What they're selling is a solution to a problem that you might have, which is like the the feeling of, you know, not having enough freedom or something like that if they're selling you something like Viagra or something to help with your erectile dysfunction, they tell you or they frame it as a solution to your problems with your manhood or something like that. So framing, whether you like it or not, sort of involves pointing out what the problem is and what it looks like and why um, people should care. So you can see that in like everything around you. Like look at an ad, think about like how it tries to frame reality to get you to buy a certain thing. So there are actually many types of frames Um, especially with regard to debate. Nina was writing them down earlier. She got at least like 20 frames, which is very intense. Nina, maybe you can tell us what the most common frames are.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's going to be productive if we run through all the 20, because that's just not, not that it's a waste of time, but I feel like it's too much for anyone to absorb in a single episode. So I guess the three I would like to highlight are tension frames, last resort frames, And lesser evil frames. And there are existent other frames, but they mostly exist in specific themes. Like in animal rights debates, you see frames about humans being superior and most likely to understand better, therefore so and so. And that's called the anthropocentric frame. On the other hand, you see frames where we are merely stewards of nature, and even that nature in itself is valuable independent of us, and that's ecocentrism. So you see different frames exist depending on the theme. So I guess the three I'd like to focus on our tension frames, last resort frames, and lesser evil frames.
0: Okay, the first one was tension frames. What are tension frames to begin with?
1: Yeah, tension frames are basically clashes between two values, and you need to sort of hint or resolve which one is more compelling. And usually this is tied with the idea of urgency. And for different topics it would apply to, they would look like religious values versus, for, for example, liberalism, or liberation versus security. So these things are are usually like different values on complete opposite ends and you're trying to frame which one society currently needs at the moment and that's where you bring aspects like urgency and you highlight that oh these two cannot coexist there is a tension between them therefore we need to get rid of one or emphasize another so this is pointing out basically that the value of your opponent cannot exist or should not exist because the tension is too big and therefore we should decide right now and usually that decision is meant to be in your favor if you want to win the debate.
0: Yeah, but how, how do you pull off attention frame? Like what or how do you say that one value is more important than the other?
1: Yeah, so there are three ways I like to do this um, because it's usually dependent on which side or which person brings out the more relevant context. So there are three ways that you do this. The first is by showcasing timeliness. The more relevant it is, the more important it becomes. So whoever has the more updated matter will usually win the frame battle because it's much more believable to look at statistics from 2021 compared to 1987 or whatever, right? The next is in terms of severity. So I would point out that there's a tension and our side gives a bigger benefit or a bigger harm potentially. But the tricky part about severity is that you don't wanna lean too much into the argumentation territory. So you wanna hint at it, but you don't wanna argue yet that there are harms and benefits. You just sort of preface that those things exist. Like most frames, they sort of overlap with arguments a lot. So you have to be very careful with that. Perhaps we can talk a little bit later about how you can exactly delineate frames from argumentation. But that's another discussion. And the third one is in terms of showing trends. So it's not enough to just show that something is timely. You need to show that that specific information is recurring, that it's not just a one-off situation that the trend, for example, of meninists and incels being on the rise is not just because of one mass shooting, but it's indicative of a greater culture, for example. And if you have this, these three things, timeliness, severity, and trend, then you're likely to reel in all of these things in an argument to showcase how exactly those things are true, therefore proving that your frame is more believable, therefore making your arguments much more compelling.
0: Let's talk about last resort frames. Uh, I feel like these are tricky frames to- Pull, out, pull off. Whoa. I feel like these are tricky frames to pull off because sometimes the last resort frame is strategic. Other times it's not just unstrategic, but it's full on against the spirit of the motion. So I have two recent examples that come to mind. The first one happened actually this weekend. Uh, I was judging around for the Philippine Law Debates Championship uh, and and they asked me to plug, plug it in. So it was um organized by um the Sanbeda Law Debate Circle and the Sanbeda Alabang Law Debate Council. Um, so Yun, that's that's your shout out, guys. So anyway, Hi. I was I was uh judging around and the motion was about whether children should be able to make medical decisions for themselves over the objection of their parents. That's what the motion said. Uh, And government in that debate said it as a last resort. Uh, They said, oh, this happens only during emergencies when the parents are irresponsible, they're not around and stuff like that. And opposition was never able to, like, respond to this frame. That's why I, I feel like that's the reason why, you know, government side won that debate, even though that clearly was not the spirit of the motion. Because, like, you can say that it's a last resort, right? But if parents are absent, then the parents couldn't have objected. So that's not what the motion calls for. Another example is a motion about, like, denying people convicted of certain crimes uh, access to health care. And Gov said, Oh, we live in a world with finite resources. If you had a lot of resources, we would give it to them. If we didn't have it, we would deny it. So it's just a last resort. And I don't feel like that was effective either because um, if you do not have resources left, you didn't really deny them anything right? Because denying means that you had the power to hypothetically accept it. So like if someone raises a POI, the only way that you could deny it is if you had the power to accept it. So if it was like after the seventh minute, if someone raises a POI, even if you tell them not to, you're not really denying them. You're just telling them, I can't. I really can't. So you would still, so the motion was really about, even if you had the power to accept it, you would still deny. So when do you consider last resort frames to be actually effective? Because anything can be a last resort. You can say that, you know, this particular thing is a last resort, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a strategic thing for you to argue. So how do you like do last resort frames more effectively?
1: Yeah. So last resort frames are tricky. Even I find them rather tricky because if you set something in a last resort, as you mentioned you might be just going against something debatable. So the first test is usually to see is this fair? Right? If making it a last resort makes it literally impossible for the other side to argue, you might think you're winning, but in fact you're giving yourself a harder time in the debate because once they call out why that strategy was unstrategic or unfair, then you're basically making it much easier for the judge to justify giving you the loss. But I think other things have to be tried before um, Using last resort, because that's literally what last resort means, you need to showcase that those things have not worked and that now this is the only hope to solve the problem. So you usually tie it with necessity. You usually have to concede that a last resort exists only when all other options have failed. It can't be the first resort. It can't be because of circumstances that can't be controlled. You have to concede that sometimes there were factors that were controllable that just got out of hand. Therefore, you need something that's a last resort. What are example topics where this would apply? For example, war strategies, like when is it justified to withhold information? It's justified when, for example, the revealing of information before has done more harm than good. And historically, it has showcased that it leads to panic or leads to harm to your own soldiers. So withholding information ends up being a last resort because of the fact that we've tried alternatives before and they have failed, and therefore we are pushed towards doing this one thing. Movements also have last resort frames, I would say. For example, when is it justified to use a martyr for a cause? It's when, for example, all other forms of lobbying have failed. When is it justified to use violence? It's when all other alternatives have failed. If you say that, oh, we're only going to use violence When, for example, um, they attack us first, that's not a last resort, right? That just makes sense. That's just an initial resort because of something that, uh, that causes you damage or causes you harm and you're trying to prevent it. So last resort means that there were other alternatives like reasonably present to you, but they are not as effective and therefore you need to take a different strategy. It also looks like using religion or using religious values to advance your movement, I would consider that a last resort because obviously religions are not as in line with us as we would like them to be. So this is a last resort thing because in any other context, we would not be aligning ourselves with religion. So I feel like those are situations where last resort frames are useful. And I think the main question you just have to ask yourself is, Will it limit the debate too much? Because if it does, then it's probably not a fair frame. So you have to use it
0: only where you know alternatives have been used before and they've failed. Um, So in, in any other situation, it won't be strategic. The third frame that you mentioned is lesser evil. And everyone, I feel like everyone already knows what the lesser evil frame is about. Could you tell us a bit more about what you need to do in order to set up this particular frame and pull it off?
1: Yeah, so a lesser evil frame usually agrees or usually starts with a concession. It starts with both sides agreeing that the options presented and the cards on the table are not preferable, but that's something that needs to be chosen between Because of the fact that, you know, much like last resort, these are what we have left. The only difference with last resort is that, well, this isn't a last resort because you still have two options, right? So this is like a mini version of the last resort frame, I would say. And what does this look like? I think the election season is a great example of lesser evil frames. Like when we had to discuss a lot about Joe Biden versus Trump or Joe Biden versus um, Bernie, for example, those are things that a lot of people consider lesser evil frames because Joe Biden, for example, is not what a lot of people preferred, but it might still be preferable to Trump. But at the same time, some people would say voting for, for Trump is still better compared to downgrading what the democratic system is meant to be or downgrading what the Democratic Party is meant to stand for. So I would say that election time is the best place to use lesser evil frames. There's also the issue locally about Duterte versus a scattered opposition. What is a lesser evil? Is having Duterte again in power or having, um, well, not necessarily this current Duterte, but you know the other Duterte in power, is that better compared to having an opposition led by Manny Pacquiao, for example? Those are debates that you would usually see, and those are usually the frames, um, that you would use lesser evil on
0: yeah so speaking of elections you know what wouldn't be a lesser evil it's registering to vote uh, so this is where I plug that we have a tournament that is we're, we're sort of designing it in order to encourage people to register to vote it's a free tournament and there are a lot of perks if you are a new voter or a new registrant to vote for this upcoming election in 2022 it's called the Magiting Cup you can look it up at facebook.com slash cup phase one is ongoing again it's free and also there are cash prizes if you do really well and there's a separate break category if you're a new voter So anyway, now that we've discussed that, that's all the sponsors, we sponsor ourselves. When would the lesser evil frame not be appropriate in a debate? Because in my head, you could always be like, yeah, no option is perfect. No model is perfect. It's always about the lesser evil.
1: Yeah, While all frames are valid sometimes, and there are situations you could use all three, right? You could talk about how this is the last resort because we have to choose between lesser evils and there's urgency because the elections is nearing. See I just combined all three at the same time but some are more appropriate to use than others because remember you only have 7 minutes to speak or even if you're not in the debate you only have very limited time to catch the attention of the people you're talking to so you need to be careful with the frames you highlight and the frames you choose to use for example it might not be strategic to use the lesser evil frame if you're debating on the side of deontology in the trolley problem because it's difficult to swallow or absorb what you're trying to push for which is claiming that killing more people is the lesser evil so that's not strategic
0: what's the trolley problem though
1: oh okay yeah the trolley problem I don't know how to describe it in like the most generic sense I can only like visualize it but even that is difficult for me so
0: the trolley problem is this thought experiment where there are two train tracks and one track has like five people tied to it and the other track only has three or sometimes one person tied to it right now there's a train that's about to run run over someone right so right now it's going to run over the track with five people on it killing five people now you have the choice to make the train switch tracks so if you do that you're not going to make these five people die only three people or one person would die so basically less people would die if you do that so the question now is should you make the train switch tracks So if you're arguing based on utilitarianism, you're saying that the best or the most moral thing to do would be to minimize the harms that would happen. So the moral thing for you to do would be to switch the tracks. But on the other hand, if you're a deontologist, you would say, deontology is basically saying that there are just things that you shouldn't do. And one of those things is killing. And essentially, if you're going to make the train switch tracks, you are basically killing people. Uh, It's not going to be the same as killing five people, but you're still killing people nonetheless. And if you don't pull the, you know, if you don't pull the lever, you don't make the train switch tracks, people are going to die. But at least you didn't particularly cause people to die. Like someone else did that like um robbie rotten did it and besides not you that that's the whole point of it so i I suppose like you wouldn't say that it's the lesser of two evils in this debate to say you know let's let's switch the track you also wouldn't say that it's the lesser of two evils to not switch the track because you're basically saying that what you're doing is not an evil at all right like Mm. am i understanding it correctly yep
1: yep yeah basically um, so you can't run it and it's not the most ideal in this situation. And I know it's this is a very nuanced example, but I guess to make it a little bit more generic and the test you can give yourself is to ask two questions before you apply this frame. The first question is, will the opposing side win if they use the same frame against me? Because if yes and they can claim that, oh, our side is actually a much lesser evil because yada, 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 then it's probably not strategic to use it if you don't know how to counter whatever you're expecting your opponents to raise. But if you feel like you have an advantage because you can anticipate what they're saying, then probably consider launching it. The second question, therefore, you need to ask is are there more persuasive frames to use? Because again, you can hypothetically use all frames you want. Like think of every frame you want, jam them in your speech, but that's going to take up five minutes, right? You need to be strategic as to how you save your time. So if there are more persuasive frames to use, then yes, use those frames instead and save your time. But If you think that other frames are not as compelling and not as strategic and you think this is the one you can really pull off, then perhaps you use this frame, but sparingly to make sure that the debate is not merely about this frame and that you're not accidentally over-conceding, right? Because while you concede that it is still an evil, obviously you don't want to phrase it that way. It's not strategic for you to claim immediately that, okay, yeah, we agree, we are doing something horrible, but this we're gonna show you why it's not as horrible, right? You always have to start by claiming, okay, it's not as bad. But even if it was bad, this is where the frame comes in. So be very careful that you're not over conceding.
0: Yeah. So I those are the three most general frames. But as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of frames that apply to specific themes only. And there we have a lot of examples. Um, we can probably talk about some of them individually. So one of them is in in economics, um, there's the debate about neoclassical economics versus Keynesian economics. I mean, I think this is kind of old hat, like this is sort of outdated because everyone tends to agree that a lot of the times you need government intervention. But traditionally, the debate here is how much should the government intervene in, uh, in a particular economy? So the neoclassical way to view it would be to say that, well, the economy sort of fixes itself. Like if there are not enough sellers of a particular good, everyone would have an incentive to actually sell more of that good and enter the market. So this is the invisible hand theory. Um, Meanwhile, the Keynesian economics uh, angle, the frame there is, there are um some things that the market cannot self-correct and thus it justifies a government intervention. So it's kind of complicated where you want to talk about like, how does it not fix itself but basically what you can just say here is on one hand you can say that the system that we have right now is self-correcting and on the other other hand you can frame it as something that cannot self-correct so The question that you're going to have to answer here is, on, on either side is, how would you frame the system that you're talking about, that you're trying to change or you're trying to make the same? Is it something that, you know, is it something that can fix itself or is it something that you need someone else to do?
1: Yeah, so I guess most frames are about systems. Another example of a system would be the state. Like, are they meant to be moralistic or are they meant to be utilitarian? So I would say, for example, that as a state, there are two ways and both are valid. It just depends on which side or which hat the state is currently using when deciding a particular law or deciding a particular way to go about a particular problem, right? So, for example, you could say a utilitarian state, for example, would, you know, put up some architecture that is brutalist. Oh, not brutalist. What they you call it? Anti-poor architecture. There's a term for that. I just forget. It's not brutalist. Is it hostile,
0: hostile architecture.
1: Yeah. Brutalist is just like sharp edges. But like uh, the other one, the one you mentioned is actually meant to prevent the poor individuals from lounging around or sleeping in the streets. Yeah. So, so utilitarian like- state. Yeah. They, they have like sharp. What do you call that? Like like there there are spikes, spokes, Spokes. like like in the
0: sidewalk so that, you know, people won't sleep on them. It's also to prevent like skaters because, yeah, skaters,
1: skaters. I I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess like, so. Like they, the they just don't want of... people to, to loiter in general. So a utilitarian yeah. state would do that because of the fact like if I were to defend it, I would use a utilitarian frame, right? That we need to do this because people are getting hurt. Like the state is just thinking about long-term investments. It doesn't look good in terms of other countries. If we have a lot of people loitering out in the streets, we want to incentivize them to find work, to get homes, etc. But a moralistic frame would be what the other team uses, right? That this is immoral. This actually harms people. We need to be more caring towards our individuals. It's not just about the statistics. It's about their feelings, etc. So I guess if we're talking about the state, you could use that particular frame against each other.
0: You can can also sort of see that in the reaction of a lot of White people, a lot of Americans about, you know, masks during the COVID pandemic, because like what happened was a lot of Americans were like, no, I don't really care about how many people I hurt or infect, or even if I get infected, it's a principle stance on like, I should have the right to do what I want with my body. So this is like, this is the thing about rights, that this is, what they, this is what they're saying. Even if it might hurt someone incidentally or something, the, the principle here is you, you should have the right to do what you want. And that's, um, that's actually a reason why I'm, I'm quite on the fence with like sort of our brand of social justice, where we are thinking of how does this actually affect people from different communities, Um, Because this might sound good from a utilitarian perspective, but from the perspective of saying that there are just moral rights, like moral things that we should stand by. Well, I I don't like to use the term moralistic because it sort of sounds like the team that is defending the moralistic position is more ethical, but more of like, what is the more principled stance here? And in a lot of cases, you'd be surprised to find that a lot of these principled stances are based on people's perceptions of the value of rights like how absolute should these rights be or um how likely should it be for them to harm another in order for their right to be justifiably restricted um there are other ones about like are rights inherent or allocated? Uh, so this is kind of you know um connected to the thing that I was just talking about because one view says that you have the right just because you are a human like human rights and whatnot but other people say that it is allocated to you in order to get a particular good. Um, so people say that you, the, your right to establish a business is not an inherent right. It's something that is given to you by the state in order to get a particular good. Uh, so you can you can say that these are some rights are inherent. You can say that some rights are you know allocated by the state. just, just last night, right? We were debating about, um, We We are debating about whether or not certain pieces of information should be withheld from people in order to preserve market confidence in times of economic crisis. So the debate there was like, you are living in an economic crisis. People are feeling pessimistic about the economy. Should you withhold information to get people to want to invest more? So a lot of the time, opposition in this debate was saying like, oh, it's just morally wrong for you to mislead people. Um, people have and deserve the right to information and to make their own choices based on complete information. And Gov in that debate was saying that, well, th- we reject that framing. We reject that framing um, that is an inherent right. We were saying that the right to information is something that is allocated. You know It is something that is given by the state only if it serves a, like the, the greater good. So it's it's the same as like your freedom to your right to information doesn't extend to getting information about national security secrets, right? Because that might harm somebody else. And so in this way, I was framing or reframing the concept of the right to free information or the right to information in general to away from something that is inherent in a human and towards something that is instrumental or allocated by the state. And, you know, like personally, I don't really believe in that. Like, I, I feel like it is something that's inherent and it's that's there must be a reason why, like, the right to information is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but I digress.
1: Yeah. So, besides that, I would also say something related to rights would be the behavior people. So you mentioned, for example, how people get their rights in terms of whether it's assigned to them or whether it's something they're born with. I guess the same can be said about how people behave because there are two frames that you can use, right? You could say that someone's actions is within something permissible uh, based on their circumstance. For example, um, a movement turning to violence. I'm going to use this example again because I feel like this is the most relevant, right? Is it permissible accommodation because of the fact that it's justified for them to use that or to go to that Extent, or is it overstepping bounds? And that's like the two contrasting frames here the sphere of permissible accommodation or overstepping bounds. And you see this quite a lot, not just in movement debates, but even in actions of people like is it justified for example for me to choose something over another thing or is it justified for us for for prisoners for example to have the right to vote is it overstepping their boundaries based on the rights that were given to them or is it still in the sphere of permissible accommodation because of the fact that even if we recognize they've done wrong there's still people who deserve particular rights so I think that behaviors and rights are inherently linked in this sense like because is because something is inherent therefore we accommodated, or because it's something that's allocated, we should see anything going beyond that as overstepping bounds.
0: Yeah, I was also thinking about something like, well, why would you, because on one hand, we're talking about rights, but what about the other side of that which is duties? And there are many different ways to understand why people have the duty to do anything in society. So like, how about the duty to follow laws? So basically, on one hand, you could argue that, you know, the reason why people should follow laws is because of this social contract, uh, for people who don't know, the social contract is this theory that um, everyone consented to the state um, having a monopoly on violence. That is to say, only the state can use, you know, like force, like physical force through the police or through the military in order to protect everyone from, you know, just hurting each other. So one of the reasons, one of the frames towards why you should uh, follow the law is because you agreed. the social contract. Uh, But on the other hand, you could also say that you should do something because it's your moral responsibility to do that something. And these two frames are important in debates about um, unrest or debates about civil disobedience because you will be violating the social contract. You will be violating certain laws, right? By the way, caveat, we are not encouraging people to (laughs) break laws but the debate here is what frame should you use in order to make sense of people who do break these laws in order to get like um, a higher purpose and in order to get a greater common good they do not think that their actions should be determined based on the social contract but rather based on moral responsibility. Um, you can also twist this frame and say that well they are doing the uprising because the government um, violated the social contract because the social social contract is saying that we are giving up our rights to to violence, to use our fists however we want, uh, and we're giving it to the state, and in exchange, the state will protect us. So if the state doesn't protect us, then that means that the entire social contract, we can just throw it out the window. Like They violated it. Why shouldn't we be allowed to violate it as well? So depending on the frame, you can twist it in order to match like a particular point of view that you want to have. And that's basically the lesson behind framing in general.
1: Yeah, I guess the last one I- I'd like to point out is in international relations. I mean, there's like a ton more. I just feel like we were talking mostly about domestic applications of fame's and also because you. And also yeah. because I really like IR. Yeah, like I exactly. Use this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, let's not pretend. Like, I just want to talk about IR. Um. So in IR, there are two main frames. Like, there are literally, like, seven frames, I think, I was taught. But for simplicity's sake, let's use the two most common ones. So there's liberal theory and realism. Realism is, you know, realpolitik, which means basically you talk about the tendency of states to be ruthless, the tendency of states to be utilitarian, to be so focused on Results and they like usually do aggressive things to get to that point. While liberal theory talks about a more hopeful view of the international community, talking about their tendency to collaborate with each other, to enter into bilateral or multilateral agreements, to be in cahoots in terms of different progress and different development stages of different countries. So, where would this usually apply? When you're you talking about a particular country, if you want to demonize a country, you use a realist frame to say that, oh, they're only likely to do things for their own benefit. But if you want to frame them in a good way, you talk about liberal theory. For example, the United States. Oh, the United States, like just framing that alone is like a a task in itself, right? Because if you are, for example, defending the US intervention, In a war-torn country, whatever that country may be, because by the time you're listening to this, it's going to be another proxy war, right? But basically, if you're justifying their intervention, you're going to use liberal theory, that they're democratic, they just want change, they want, they want what's best for people and they want to help people out, etc. But if you're against intervention, you would use a more realist frame. You talk about how, you know, most of the time intervention is for their own personal gain. They're after oil. They're after dominance in that region. They're after more trade deals with a particular country because they are now reliant on you and no one else. Basically, in realism... You you assume the worst of different nations, and that usually helps you win a debate. Or you assume the best of them, and that could help you win a debate if you pull it off. I'm personally more of a realist. I find it easier to win debates by using more aggressive versions of countries. But of course, you know, other people manage to pull off liberal theory. I think Kyle pulls it off really well compared to me. Um, which is why when we talk in IR rounds, we usually like one is the kind good cop and then the other is the bad cop when talking about a country. I'm just
0: I'm just a good cop in general because <laughs> yeah. I, you know, people are people are intrinsically good, you know. <laughs> hmm. People are intrinsically good. Uh, so I guess that's it for a longer than expected episode about framing. We thought it was something that like since it's more like a kind of a basic thing that we wanted to talk about today, that it wouldn't take too long. But, you know, in, in true Nina and Kyle fashion, we ended up talking a lot more than we initially expected we would. So th- this is the problem, right? Because a lot of people were like, hmm, do you have scripts that you can give us? you have transcripts? And you're like, yeah, we'd love to have scripts. It's just that we we always go off-script. And speaking of off-script, it's the sauna today. day. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, we're recording this when the sun is happening. We'll probably talk about it in Matter with Medina and Kyle, our new segment. We hope you also listen to that. Well, if you're subscribed to us, you're likely going to see it already, but I hope that you don't skip those episodes. Every view counts. Oh, look at that plug again. We're advertising a lot of things today.
0: Yeah, so that's it for this episode of Debatable with your hosts, me and Kyle. I'm Kyle, signing off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? I, don't know. Right. I was trying to bye. do something
0: new because, like, you know, we, we have a new segment. How about we have a different outro or
1: something? You literally just did signing our intro. In the outro. <laughs> okay, bye, guys. Bye. bye.